What's wrong with the world? Type it into Google uh, and you'll get 1.43 billion hits. <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion about what's wrong with the world. All sorts of rants about suffering, religion, the environment, the bad behaviour of kids today, the high price of groceries, people pushing in in queues. The internet is full of people who think they know the answer. Uh, Or maybe just lots of people who are asking the question, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Well, ask a politician. The election's just round the corner and they've got lots of answers to the question and the policies to try and fix it up. What's wrong with the world? Uh, The English author G.K. Chesterton wrote a book on that title, with that title, in the early part of the 20th century. And to be honest, I haven't read it, but I have looked at the contents page and it it does seem like he has a lot to say on the subject. But he's best known for something he wrote to the London Times. Uh, The paper invited a number of leading British authors to submit feature articles addressing this very question, what's wrong with the world? Uh, and Chesterton's contribution took the form of a letter. Now, you'd expect someone, something pre- fairly profound from someone who's written a whole book on the subject. Uh, are you ready for what he wrote? What's wrong with the world? Here's his letter. Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> it's concise, clear, devastatingly brutal and completely correct. I hope he didn't get paid by the word. What's wrong with the world? I am. And so are you. We all are. That's Paul's answer to the question as well. What's wrong with the world? Us. We're what's wrong with the world. Not just them, someone else, but all of us. Humanity is what's wrong. Us and them. It's true in Paul's day, it was true in Chesterton's day and it's true in ours. We're picking up the letter of Romans today from verse 18 of chapter 1. Last week we finished with Paul's declaration that he's not ashamed of the Gospel because it's God's power to save people, to rescue people. But rescue from what? Rescue from what? A message of rescue is only good news if you can actually see the need to be rescued. So Paul is now going to show the danger that we need rescuing from, what it is that the Gospel saves us from. So verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's anger, God's judgement is the danger we're facing. And Paul says it's already being revealed in this life, right now. His anger is being revealed and he's angry at godlessness and wickedness, sin. Sin is the topic uh, of what Paul writes all the way from verse 18 here through chapter 2 and almost to the end of chapter 3. All the way up to verse 20 of chapter 3, the topic is the same. People, People are guilty before God of sin and no one escapes, no one escapes. Remember the two main groups uh, who made up the church in Rome. There's the Jews and there's the non-Jews or the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are Paul's first target. 
uh, all the way through from verse 18 to the end of chapter 1. Gentiles are guilty, he says. They're guilty before God. And then from chapter 2 into chapter 3 he turns his attention to the Jews as well and says they're guilty too. So the first thing he wants to say to the Gentiles is that they're guilty and that ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance of God is no excuse. Uh, Verse 19, God is right to be angry with them since what may be known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that men are without excuse. It's no good saying to the policeman who pulls you over for speeding, but I didn't know it was a school zone. The signs were there. It's your fault if you don't recognise them. And so it's right for you to be fined. You are without excuse. And it's the same with God. The signs of God are there for everyone to see. He's left them there intentionally so that we might recognise him the creator from his creation. Do you see it there at the end of verse 19? Because God has made it plain to them. His fingerprints are everywhere. His fingerprints are on the enormity of the night sky, on the intricate design of a unicellular organism or a flower or a snowflake. His fingerprints are on the mind-boggling complexity of the human body or the perfect balance of the water cycle or food chains. His fingerprints are everywhere, but instead of recognising and honouring the Creator, verse 18 says people suppress that truth. They squash it down. They hide it. They refuse to acknowledge it by their wickedness. Or a couple of verses further on, verse 21, it says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The signs were there, but people chose to ignore them. They made a conscious choice not to glorify God, not to thank him. So it's no good for somebody to say, it's not fair, why would God judge me? No one ever told me about him. I didn't know. Well, these verses are saying, There's no excuse. Instead of worshipping God, the choice people make instead is to worship created things. Everybody worships something. We were made to worship. We are worshipping creatures. And we either worship God or we worship something else. There from verse 22, perhaps it's idols or statues, birds, reptiles or mammals or even uh, gods that look like men. But when you worship created things, Paul says that's futile. It's pointless, foolish. Carving a crocodile out of a lump of stone and then bowing down to it and asking advice of it. It's ridiculous. Uh, Is it any different today though? Idolatry has changed what it looks like but it's still the same. People bow down before sportsmen Singers, politicians, what's taking a selfie with a famous person? That's bowing down before them, isn't it? 
building their careers or their homes or their bank balances or their boats is worshipping, devoting their lives to them. And it's foolish because they'll just rust or you'll be betrayed, they'll be devalued or dismissed. Those sorts of idols turn to malignancy, become inoperable. They decay, they're destroyed, they're dead. To worship those sorts of idols is futile, it's pointless. But Paul wants to say when people choose those things rather than choosing to worship God, it's not a matter of intelligence. As if only people with a low IQ will worship created things rather than the creator. It's not a matter of brain power or education or privilege or income. Paul says it's to do with a heart. Every one of us has a heart condition when it comes to God. Now he's not talking about the blood pumping muscle in your chest. When the Bible talks about the heart, it means your basic identity, your natural orientation, your personality if you like. We all have a heart condition. At the end of verse 21, Paul says, their foolish hearts were darkened. Or in verse 24, the sinful desires of their hearts, their natural inclination, their basic nature. Our basic nature is to ignore God, to make our own decisions. Our basic orientation is that we want to sit on the throne rather than let God sit on the throne. That's what sin is. Sin might be a whole lot of actions and good things not done and bad things done, but at its root it's the fact that we're sitting on the throne, not God. That's sin. Everything else flows from that. All the law-breaking, all the selfishness, the idolatry and the immorality, the wickedness and disobedience, it flows from our basic human nature of wanting to be the boss. All of those things are just symptoms of our heart condition. That's what's wrong with the world. It's you and it's me, it's our hearts. And so what God does is to give people over to the sinful desires of their hearts. He's doing it right now. He's allowing them to live out the consequences of that sinful heart orientation. Three times uh, to the end of chapter 1 we get the same phrase, God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 26, because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. And again in verse 28. This is judgement but in a sense it's judgement before the final judgement and in a sense it's a gracious judgement because God is allowing people to experience where their choices will ultimately lead them. He's allowing them to live out the horror of their heart desires, to, to see the pain it causes, to see the brokenness and the ugliness, to see where it all will lead and to do it before it's too late. So they have a choice to change, to recognise and turn back to God and say, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want a heart that desires these things because I can see where that's going to end up. God is giving them over so they might experience and turn back to him. 
God's wrath is being revealed against people's sin and godlessness as he hands them over to live out the consequences of that. That's what's wrong with the world. Well, that's the Gentiles, those without God's law. Now you can imagine uh, the Roman church uh, was probably a number of house churches, so small groups of mixes of Christians and non, uh, of uh, Roman, uh, sorry, Gentiles and Jews. But you can imagine, as Paul's letters being read out, that the Jews are sitting, yeah, sitting pretty, uh, pretty comfortably as uh, Paul's reading chapter one. Uh, yeah, those Gentiles, all those obvious sins. We're not like that. You, you, you tell them, Paul. They need to hear these words. Uh, we're not like that because we've got the law. Well, now Paul turns his attention to the Jews, chapter 2. You there, Paul, have no excuse, you who pass judgement on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgement do the same things. Don't be so quick to point the finger, says Paul. Take a a good look in the mirror first. What do they say? Whenever you point the finger, be careful because there's always three fingers pointing back at you. Remember, ignorance is no excuse for the Gentiles and Paul wants to say, well, knowledge, that's no excuse for you Jews. Ignorance is no excuse. Knowledge is no excuse either. Verse 2, now we know that God's judgement against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgement on them, yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape? Paul's saying, just because you know the law, that doesn't mean anything. Having it, knowing it, is not enough. It's like the Sydney accounting supervisor for the luxury cruise line, uh, Silver Sea Cruises. A news story this week said uh, she's been charged with embezzling $3.5 million from her employer. She's generated fake invoices, transferred the money into bank accounts she controls, She knew all the rules about accounting and how to deal with money properly. But that, allegedly, didn't stop her. In fact, it probably helped her. You see, the people in the office, those who know all the rules, they're essentially the same as the cruise customers and those people who don't know the rules. They're greedy. They want whatever they can get. Knowing the rules doesn't make you better than someone who doesn't know the rules. And that's Paul's point. It's the same with the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew knows the law, the Gentile doesn't, but they're essentially the same. The problem for the Jew is he has a heart condition as well. Uh, They're from verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Remember the Gentile? The Gentile had a foolish heart, a heart with sinful desires that suppressed the truth. But the Jewish heart, well, it's something different. It's stubborn, it's unrepentant. It knows God's standard but refuses to keep it. It consciously moves in the other direction. No, I don't want to do that, I'm going to do this instead. The Jewish heart refuses to turn around 
In lots of ways it's worse than the ignorant heart or the foolish heart. It's a different symptom but it's the same disease, isn't it? The lifestyle of the Jew would have looked very different from the Gentiles, especially the Gentile described in chapter 1, the same sex practising. But the root cause is the same. Both Jew and Gentile have a heart condition. And because it's the same disease, God will be completely fair when he judges both the same. Verse 6, God's righteous judgment. God will give to each person according to what he's done, verse 6. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he'll give eternal life, but to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Here's his big point, for God does not show favouritism. There'll be no pushing in, there'll be no jumping the queue, there'll be no special favours with God on the basis of what you know or what you don't know. If you don't know the law and you sin, you perish. If you do know the law and you sin, well, you perish as well. Hearing is not enough. Having is not enough. Doing is what counts, says Paul. And it all gets back to the root of the problem because the law won't fix the root of the problem. The law is like band-aids or antiseptic on blood poisoning. The solution to our sin has to be something that deals with the cause, our heart condition. We need heart surgery. We need heart surgery. Jump down to verse 28. He's talking to the Jew... Uh, We didn't read this section. Uh, Verse 28, he's talking to the Jew who's confident before God simply because he's a Jew. Not only does he have the law, but he's actually been circumcised. Tick, tick, he's been circumcised. But Paul says, being circumcised physically doesn't count for anything. You need circumcision of your heart. You need God to fix up your sinful heart. You need spiritual heart surgery. His spirit making you new. Only God can do that and he can do it whatever your nationality is, whatever physical markers are on your body. So verse 28, he says, A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code or the law. The law doesn't do anything. God has to do it. We're powerless. That's what his rescue is all about. That's what the gospel saves us for, to give us a new heart. We all need it, this heart surgery, because we all have the same problem. If we jump forward a bit, we've all got the same problem. We're jumping forward to chapter 3, verse 9. Here's Paul's conclusion. He's been on about it for about 50 verses. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we, the Jews, any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Male and female. Educated, uneducated. 
rich, poor, married, single, young, old, busy or bored, babies or businessmen, black or beige, beautiful or bland, we're all under sin. All of us have a foolish, sinful, wicked, stubborn, unrepentant heart and we all need a new heart, one that only God can give us. A new heart that gives us a new desire and a new orientation and a new power and a new motivation to live God's way. We all need it, but none of us deserve it and we can't do it on our own. We'll see more next week about how we can get it. But as we finish, a few points of application. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. You and I are what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with our church? I am. You are. You and I are what's wrong with this church. So how about showing a little more humility and a little less arrogance? Don't judge other people. Don't measure them by some unrealistic yardstick that only you are able to measure up to. Don't compare yourself to other people. And when you feel church isn't what it should be, don't be too hasty to point the finger at others. Have a good look in the mirror yourself. What can you do to change about what church is? What can you change in yourself about how you treat people and the priorities you set? Change yourself. You're what's wrong with the church. It's the same with other areas of life, isn't it? What's wrong with your family? What's wrong with your marriage? You are. Don't be too hasty to point the finger at others. Have a good look in the mirror first. What can you change? Now, I'm not saying there's nothing that other people can't do better or that marriages, let's say, are not largely the fault of one person. But the only person you're responsible for is yourself. The only person you can work on changing is yourself. Here's another point of application. If you are what's wrong with the world, then that means you should accept others. You should accept others. Not just theoretically, but practically, realistically. Having an accepting attitude that shows itself in actions and words. This church is a hospital for sick people. This church is a hospital for sick people. We don't have it all together. None of us do. I'm not better than you. We all need grace and acceptance and forgiveness. So let's accept each other. And when it comes to those outside our church, those who haven't had the privileges that we have, the knowledge, the upbringing, the opportunities. Remember that we're we're no better than them. Let's not judge their lifestyle or their language or their behaviour. Let's humbly and lovingly point them to the one who's graciously saved us and who offers the same gift to them as well. One beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. 
grace, acceptance and love. It's what God offers you. We focused on the danger of God's judgement. We focused on our sin. But, but let me not finish there. Let, let's finish at chapter 2 verse 4. It's a great place to finish. Chapter 2 verse 4. Paul's accusing the Jews of despising God's, the riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience. God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Here's the God who offers us rescue, salvation in Jesus, in the Gospel. The God who offers us a new heart in place of our broken one. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. So give him the glory. Give him the thanks. Humbly follow and obey him, this kind, tolerant and patient God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves clearly, help us to see you clearly, help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to see those around us clearly as well and to treat them as you would have us treat them. Amen.